Hey everyone, this is Jason here and I wanted to take a moment to give you a little bit of a breakdown on this upcoming episode. So what follows is a pretty epic discussion between myself and Jesse from the Sudden But Inevitable podcast, and it is specifically with regards to the final six episodes of the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. So, we are going to do a lot of jumping around and there's going to be a lot of allusions to earlier parts of the series. All of that to say that unlike a lot of our films, if you have not seen the episode, I really wouldn't recommend listening to this. I would go back, I would watch the entire series first, and then after that I would watch the film End of Evangelion, which is going to retell the final two episodes of the series, because Jesse and I afterwards are going to be looking at that film as well, and spending about close to an hour 45 on that. So what you can expect is a three-part, three-and-a-half-hour conversation breaking down the final six episodes of the series, followed by a two-part, one-hour-and-45-minute conversation about the film that retells the final two episodes of the series. So all of this will be parceled out over the following couple of months, and in between that we will have our... Five-minute reviews strewn between them, just in case there's a lot of you out there that haven't listened. So hopefully you enjoy this epic breakdown of Neon Genesis Evangelion. If you haven't watched it, please go do so right now. It is a wonderful, wonderful program, and we will catch you back here to break down a lot of the more mysterious elements. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget him. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host, Jason Peters, and with me today is not Ryan Seabold. I know, crazy, right? You've got one of us without the other. What the hell is going on in this bizarro world? Well, we should remind you that we are in our off-season, and during this off-season, that's right, we're getting experimental out here. You know, uh, going into some psychedelic stuff, which actually is going to parlay well into the show. That's right, not film, but show that we're watching today. It's almost blasphemy. I know, esoteric cinema but look, this is a fantastic show that definitely has a lot of cinematic qualities, rife with metaphors, open to interpretation. It's going to be a fantastic discussion today. We are looking at, as I'm sure you've already looked at from the title card, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is an anime from the late 90s. I know, anime, right? Crazy. We did a little bit of Japanese animation earlier with Perfect Blue, and so this is kind of an extension of that. So... If no Ryan, does that mean you're going to be stuck with me for two hours, an hour and a half, however the hell long this is going to go? No, I have brought in a friend of the show. That's right. Straight from the Sudden But Inevitable podcast, which is a sci-fi rewatch podcast dedicated to single season television shows. I have brought over Mr. Jesse Bailey. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I 
have to get this out of the way. I have listened to your show at least six or seven times. I did listen to the wow. aforementioned Perfect Blue episode, and I really enjoyed that. Thanks, but man. yes, as Jason mentioned, normally I am bringing my crew through a space western. Usually it's it's a sci-fi series, but it's almost exclusively been space westerns so far. And the way that our show came about was he was like, you got to watch Book of... Uh, oh, nope, nope. He said, you got to watch Mandalorian with me. And I went, I don't want to watch that. It looks like a Boba Fett ripoff. <laughs> um, turns out the Mandalorian was pretty enjoyable. So I kept going, this is a lot like Firefly. And he went, I've never seen Firefly. And I went, I'm about to start a podcast. And I did. And I forced him through Firefly one episode at a time. We brought him through Serenity. <laughs> he properly hates me now. Uh, but I used that <laughs> as a springboard to get him into another thing he doesn't like, which is anime, fittingly enough. And I oh, drug wow. him through Cowboy Bebop one episode at a time, just in time so that he could watch the live-action Netflix Cowboy Bebop with me, which was then canceled, which made it eligible to be covered by our show, which we are now doing. So it, it's just <laughs> a very perfect sci-fi blend of anime and, you know, all of those little pieces falling together that have brought me here to talk about Neon Genesis with you, Jason. I got to tell you, man, I am very, very excited to talk about this series. Nobody on my crew has seen it, so I don't often get the opportunity to speak on this. I'm very excited. Let's go. Awesome. Definitely. Me too. And yeah, and just a little bit of color for all the people listening. So I am not an anime guy. Like, are you like historically an anime guy? Are you pretty well, in, like deep into it? Have you done a lot so, of the shows? I, I, I think by like... The anime fan community standard, I would probably still be considered a neophyte. Um, okay. I just saw uh, this series, for example, uh, two years ago, and I did, spoiler alert, really enjoy myself, but I hadn't seen it prior to that. Uh, I hadn't seen it prior to it being available on Netflix, um, but I did binge it over the course of like two days the first time that I saw it. So um, <laughs> I, I'm very open to anime. I like to... Um, push people into watching it and I'd like to point out to them hey in I know that in the western world animation is for children that's just kind of a weird paradigm that we've ended up in right where and you know mm -hmm. we could blame if blame is the right word we could blame Disney for that but um, I think it's important to look at anime as just a medium and not as a genre right because a lot of people go I don't like anime sure. because I don't like that genre and it's important to go that's actually not a genre. It's a medium. There are a hundred <laughs> genres within it, just like any other storytelling medium, right? Just like a book or a movie, if you will. So um, I, I think that resistance to it can be natural because it does look very different from what most Western audiences are used to. But I think that that's kind of the perfect inroad to the medium because if you ask yourself, okay, why am I resistant to that? There's your inroad. Now you can look at this piece in front of you from a slightly different angle because you can you could even go into it knowingly resistant and still get something out of it. If you go in going, why am I resistant to the things that I'm seeing? And man, sure. I mean, as far as reputation goes, I mean, anime itself has a reputation, right? But this series, the reputation for this series, like when I heard that it was going to be on Netflix two years ago, I went, oh, I'm going to finally get to watch that series that everybody always talks about, you know, in the fandom circles. And yeah, I was I was elated. I was really excited. And I knew going in like, OK, everybody 
you know, is telling me this is going to be like this crazy experience and you better be ready. And I'm like, it is a TV show about giant robots. I'm sure <laughs> I will be okay. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. I could not have been further <laughs> off the mark. And, and I think anytime you can go into something with your arms crossed and come out on the other side of it with a full heart for the thing you've seen is impressive. And that definitely captures my experience with this series. And I think that it's set up to give that experience. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your experience. I've actually never, like I said, I haven't ever got to talk to somebody who, you know, recently experienced it or, you know, from like a, from an analytical standpoint. So I'm yeah. really excited for this. Yeah. So same, is this man. your first anime or would this be your second or was this your first anime series? Cause I know that you watched perfect blue, right? Yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm not like a complete, uh, like I, like I'm not completely new to anime. I just haven't seen a lot of it. So, so first and foremost, I actually do have a daughter and she loves anime. She is like all, like all the genres, all the shows, everything. Right. And I loved what you had to say about animation being more of, you know, a uh, medium than a genre. And, uh, I think that's something that we've seen more recently with the expansion because people forget like 20 years ago, like you really couldn't just get anime. Like it was a very specialized thing. And you always had that like friend of a friend of a friend whose dad had some sort of inroad to like region two discs and they had all the anime, but like it wasn't something that normal people could just access and slot in with all of the other um, medias and all of the different animation, the U.S. animation and stuff. So um, I didn't grow up on it because of that. And uh, but it's been something that I've been getting into recently. So uh, by now I have seen Cowboy Bebop. That was actually my second introduction to anime. My first being Death Note. Nice. Uh, and I loved both of those. And so then I started getting into it. And then I started, uh, you know, and then I and then I got really deep, actually, into the Berserk uh, manga or manga. By the way, do you say manga or manga? This is a point of contention in the household. This is a this is an excellent question. I try to say manga. Um, I think I am known in some circles as a bit of a pedant, though. Um, OK, so that's possible. But I <laughs> I feel like it's respectful and I am always only attempting to be respectful when I say manga. So I generally say manga. I say manga as well, but I think it's actually manga from what my daughter has to say. Really? Yeah. So I, I don't know. Uh, she also gives me crap because I say Yakuza and apparently like that's cringe. Well, I believe it's Yakuza, <laughs> right? But there, yeah. it's the the overcorrecting white guy is a thing that we might just have to be, man. Like, I, I, it is the again. Time it's of like the... this stuff is new to us. We didn't grow yeah. up on it. Like you've had experience, you know, and like, and the thing is too. Also, the representation, you know, like yes. authentic Asian representation was not around in the '90s. They were broad yeah. stereotypes used for comedic purposes. See Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, for examples. Well, and even to your point of Cowboy Bebop. I mean, some of the creators have used pretty harsh language, you know, describing their own creations. They're like, oh, yeah, he was meant to be this particular stereotype of a character. And, you know, you wouldn't repeat it now. But it's like, you know, that's how they that's just they were talking that way because they knew those stereotypes existed. And it was a shorthand to communicate that thing. Does yeah. that excuse it? Not necessarily. But to your point about how it used to have this, <clears throat> I'm going to do it. It used to have this esoteric nature to it where you couldn't. <laughs> just grab something off the shelf you had to know somebody who knew somebody who yeah. was a little older than you and i think that 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 really added this level of like 
taboo-ness. Sure. Taboo, yeah, like, like stealing to it. Yeah, because it was like, not only can I not easily access it, but I know they're drawing pictures of stuff that I have never seen people <laughs> draw pictures of stuff before. You know, I, like you can look at the title and go, there's something in this movie that I want to see, right? Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. It could be violent. It could be graphic in some other way. But as a, you know, 10 to 13-year-old boy, for my personal example, mm. it it was it really did amplify all those feelings of I have to know what's here. So I guess to actually answer your question from 25 minutes ago, I've seen, <laughs> you know, Escaflone, I've seen Cowboy Bebop, I've seen Death Note, I loved Death Note, I've yeah, seen Neon Genesis now. Um, I watched a few of the Netflix series. I loved their Castlevania, I liked Knights of Sidonia. Mm. Um, so I've 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 watched anime. But I don't want to say a lot because there is so much of it. Yeah, and, it's deep. And yeah, Definitely. I, I like to think that I've hit the big ones, but I'm sure there are still ones that I've missed. For example, Berserk. I have not seen the anime adaptation of that, and I am definitely ready for it, but there's just so much of it. The depth and breadth of the medium is 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 vast. Yeah, definitely. I don't quite recommend the um, series. I've actually watched like all of them, like, and they just keep remaking the same storyline over and over. I think they have three, including the movie and the two series. They've told it like three times now. And of course, I'm a sucker for it and I still jump in every time. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, just I mean, if you can, I would definitely say read the ma- read the mangas, but also like they're pretty brutal and they definitely get a little porny at times. Like it's definitely not for kids. And there are certain times where you're just like feel kind of dirty for reading like these like two to three uh, issues. Like I think it's like 14 through 17 or something particularly. Or But then also like everything outside of that is like amazing and incredible. Like it's it's super dark. Like I, re- I really like dark supernatural stuff. And so when you start bringing in like cosmic horror and elder gods and different dimensions and stuff like that, like I just like I'm there every single time. You've got my 15 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I feel like, I mean, there's definitely cultural connotations to that stuff, right? Like it is a little porny to to use the to use your term because it's like when we imposed, you know, the post-war like rules for their culture, it was like, here, don't talk about this stuff, don't talk about that stuff, like it's going to be this way now. Yeah. But it's 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 interesting to me how it it just seems like culturally Japanese media seems more willing to explore the taboo nature of of being a person, right? Like sure. the the things that most Western media shies away from. It seems like there are fourteen anime series per like <laughs> mental hang up, right? So it's I, which I think is great. But to your point, it does create so many access points, different access points. You could be into that dark supernatural thing. I used uh, uh, police procedurals to get my wife to watch Death Note because oh, nice. she does not like anime, specifically yeah. is anti-anime, but she likes <laughs> police procedurals in Law and & Order. And I was like, what if there was a guy chasing a guy? And she's like, oh, I'm into this. And then, you know, you kind of get Did that work, it. by the way? Because it sounds like we have very similar wives. Dude, she loved it. Oh and wow, she, that's crazy! So she got <laughs> she got partway through, and then like the uh, Ryuk shows up, and she was like, "Okay, he's super cute, and I love that he <laughs> loves apples. I'm totally here for this." And then once Misa showed up, she was like, "Okay, yeah, I'm sold on this." So she just needed that inroad. Now I'll be totally honest with you; I haven't been able to get her to watch a second anime series since then. Sure, but but that <laughs> one it was squarely within her wheelhouse, yeah. right? And I knew that there were elements of it that she would dig, and it worked. So. So nice. I it's kind of like with any I mean that's sort of the essence of my show is getting yeah. people that I think will 
like a thing to watch it despite their resistances. Sure. But I mean, anime, like we were saying, it's just so wide. So if you if you can just take, you know, one or two of your interests and and pinpoint that. So I guess for this show, your interests would be like sci-fi and angst. yes like if you like watching giant robots fight but you also like to question your relationship with the universe and your place within it and what uh existence means and like basically if you like if you like uh if you like robotech but you've always wanted it with a healthy dose of existential dread this is the show for you yeah if you've (laughs) if you've ever been looking for a show that perfectly captures your experience of watching it like via its own main character i think that this is a good example of that where shinji has no idea what is happening 90 percent of this show right and he says as much and it's like i mean even from the start of the series he's he's riding this elevator past this giant robot hand and then when he gets up to the robot head he's surprised and it's like dude were you not paying attention but to answer the question no he was reading in a book so it's like (laughs) there's so much to look at in this series that you're like okay what is happening and then by the time you feel like you're catching up all the rules are changing episode by episode and it's just like i i feel like i know where this started but i have no idea where it is going which i is i gotta say i think that's an accomplishment because to get me invested in a narrative that I don't understand, like <laughs> for a good portion of it, right? Yeah. Is is impressive. To and me. that's exactly my experience too. And that's what we're gonna do here is specifically because I had the same with you. I really enjoyed my experience, but I was like, there's so many loose hanging threads, or I feel like themes were touched upon and maybe they were ex- explained and maybe they were went into and I missed it, but maybe it wasn't. And so I really kind of wanted to break down a lot of the more metaphorical elements is really just and uh, specifically focus on the last basically like six episodes. So uh, I'm actually a big physical media guy. So I actually uh, went out and bought this on Blu-ray. I actually don't have streaming Netflix. I'm one of those. I'm one of those guys that has the red envelope Netflix still. You may not have even knew they still had it. But they do. I heard, yes. I, I remember you guys talking about that on <laughs> a prior get, episode. Yeah, you can get all the Criterions on there and like just random ass Blu-rays. I got 1993's California the other day, which just like, again, it's random ass movies that are really hard to find everywhere else. Like they always have them there. So it's super cool to have. But anyway, so all of that to say, big physical media supporter. I went out, um, bought the Blu-ray because at the end of the day, if it sucks, I'm going to be able to flip it for like, you know, three quarters of what I got it for at least, which is... The price of a month of Netflix or better. So anyways, that's kind of how I approach that. Thankfully, I really (laughs) loved it and I'm not giving it up for the life of me. Um, But for anybody else who gets the actual Blu-ray disc, we're just focusing on it's not the last disc because the last disc has End of Evangelion, which we'll get to later. Um, It's the second to last disc and it has the last six episodes. So again, if you do have that Blu-ray disc, we're just focusing on that uh, disc five uh, episodes 21 through 26. Yes, including the infamous final two. Uh, which we'll go into later. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go all over the place, but we're going to use these final six episodes as sort of a narrative springboard to help keep us on track. If you've listened to the show before, um, you know that uh, I can definitely go on uh, tangents. If you listen to Jesse's show, he can do the same. So the two of us together, I mean, shit, it's taken us 20 minutes just to get started on the discussion. (laughs) So uh, that should tell you something right there. We're going to focus on these last six episodes. And so where I'm going to start out Um, is episode 21. Now, Jesse, when this starts out, this is basically where we see a lot of that grainy footage 
of um, the year 2000. And it's basically going back to sort of right before the second impact occurred. Okay, and we sort of see these scientists, they're, you know, squabbling and we hear a lot of narration. And then all of a sudden these alarms blare and we see the outline of this like giant energy sort of being before it quickly cuts out. Okay, and that's going to we're going to come back to that a little bit later. Um, and if, especially if you've seen End of Evangelion, you should sort of know what that is. By the way, I will say Evangelion and Gelion <laughs> and interchange the two of them <laughs> because I, before I read, before I watched it, I was certain it was Evangelion. It just yeah. sounds natural. And then they started like gunning the G. And so I'm like, crap, but you're going to hear both pronunciations. Yeah. And they won't even give me an Evangel- Evangelion. <laughs> it's like Evangelion. It's like the <laughs> most non-obvious pronunciation of the made-up word that they could have gone with. But yes, I think it's a beautiful word, but yes. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So we're so let me just, uh, again, there's a lot to go into. We expect that pretty much everybody listening has you know seen the series at least once. Um, I will just, a uh, quick reminder of sort of where we're at here. So this is the episode where they basically sort of reveal the origins of Nerve and the origins of the Magi supercomputer. Um, so we've got Nerve, which is the shadow division of the government that is dedicated to supposedly fighting the angels to prevent the third impact. Also uh, was predicted by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I love how they just like threw that whole thing in there where it's like, okay, now on top of that, there's like these religious prognostications and such. Like they just jam so much in here. But it's uh, this organization is run by, uh, the foremost it's by Commander Akari, Gendo, who's uh, Shinji's father, uh, as well as Zile, which is the organization, the the board members uh, that are typically represented by these monoliths with these like digital readouts. And then again, we have the Magi, which is are these three supercomputers who are the creation, by the way, just in case anyone was unclear. So the Magi system was created by a character Naoko Akagi, I do apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciations, and she is Ritsuko's mom. Ritsuko is the blonde character that is actively managing the Magi system throughout most of the series. So this, and then uh, it's pretty soon where we get the sort of explanation of what happened there. And when she created the the Magi system, it's three... It's it, it's a they're they're essentially biocomputers. And I, and I wanted to ask you about some of the nature of biomechanics that kind of comes up in here. So yeah. she basically was like, look, I, I took three elements of my personality and imbued them into these uh, into these supercomputers. Casper, Balthazar and Melchior are their names, which, by the way, remind me very much of the oracles from Minority Report. And I'd love to know if. Philip Dick inspired him or if this guy inspired mm. Spielberg, like who inspired who? I would love to know. But to, yeah, so my specific question for you, Jesse, is there's like the whole notion of like biomechanics, right? Um, and it's kind of like lightly touched on, but it's not necessarily explored in detail. Um, but it's kind of a fascinating topic of discussion. So I guess my, my, my question to you specifically is with regard to the exact nature of the EVAs. And by the way, if you don't like have necessarily answers figured out, like you could sort of just walk us through your process. Like there's a lot of I have a lot more questions than answers, even <laughs> after breaking down a lot of the aspects of the show. Yeah. Right. But so we've got essentially two main uh, biomechanical entities. And the first is the Magi supercomputer system. And then the second are the EVAs themselves, 
which we're sort of told at different points are humans and also machines or a hybrid of both. So I guess my question to you is specifically with regards to the Evas, like, do you have a theory as to like very specifically what they are, how they came to be, what exactly a marriage of, uh, you know, machinery and, and biology they are? So I I feel like we cannot talk about this particular exact topic in this particular exact show without touching on the penetrative nature of 90% of the imagery in the show. Like, um, there's a lot of insertion going on. There's a lot of uh, things within other things. Uh, Some of the angels particularly have very phallic shapes. The uh, merging of genders is a very important piece of this story. We've got the the female receptacles that the male pods go into, right, with the mm-hmm. pilots in them, etc. Mm-hmm. But then that pilot has to allow themselves to be filled, you know, from within by the LCL fluid. So there's yeah. like very complicated, um, penetrative, like politics, I guess, for lack of a better term. <laughs> going on with all of this technology and I think this biotechnology and I think that it it really fits well because the nature specifically of Gendo Ikari seems mm-hmm. to be excessively exploitative right sure. and yeah. of all the people around him um, and and to be clear he believes that that is coming from a good place like he's doing it because he's he really thinks he's trying to save humanity. So mm-hmm. he, he, in his head, he's justified. But I feel like the Magi supercomputer is, was definitely, he feels like that guy that can push people to get to the answer, but he will never take the risk himself. Right. So mm-hmm. it's like he pushed Ritsuko's mother to the edge of what if you built a living thinking supercomputer and they got to the edge and she went, I, there's, I can't go further without installing a human mind, but I don't know if that will work. And then he went, oh, okay, well, then I guess we'll either, I guess we'll, he probably said, we'll shut it down then, knowing that that would cause her to insert her own mind. And it, sure. it really feels like he is all about manipulating specifically the women in his life to, mm-hmm. you know, serve a purpose. He sees them as an instrument. He sees all of humanity as an instrument. He yes. literally named his project after it. <laughs> so, you know, to him, these are all just pieces of a biomechanical puzzle. And it it feels grossly sexual in a way, but it's also... I don't know. It's somehow beautiful, right? The yeah. sleek nature of these robots. Like when you when somebody tells you giant robots, I, despite having specifically never seen a an entire Gundam series, I always sure. picture Gundams, right? Big square triangle, uh, slow moving guys. I don't know that they're slow moving because I haven't seen the series, but they look slow. They look clunky. They're very yeah. you know you know blocky by design. Transformers are the same way to me. These are like sleek, organic-looking robots, to your point. And I feel like, you know, it is touched on that each of these suits has an ideal pilot. And there's no way that that could be the case without there being some sort of connection, right? Yeah. And we start to to learn early on that, like, maybe the reason that they're called children has something to do with the the nature of why they are pilots and things like that. But it's, it's, I, I really landed at the end of it. I really landed in squarely the camp of Gendo 
convinced Ritsuko's mother to put her brain into a supercomputer and become the Magi. Mm-hmm. And then he convinced Shinji's mother to put her body and mind into this the structure that was provided by an angel to become the Ava. And then, hmm. you know, the woman who birthed Shinji then allows Shinji back into her body, you know, her protective womb, yeah. and uses it to save humanity like i i am a my daughter is almost three so i consider myself a new parent still sure if there was a way that i could wrap myself around my daughter to protect her from the world at all times you bet your ass i would do that so i i fall squarely within that that school of thought as to what the avas are and well let me ask you this specifically then just touching on the avas so there's this whole notion that they may or may not be like objectively sentient to a degree. And I guess that's kind of more what I'm what I'm interested in understanding from you is basically where do you think the line between their synergistic relationship with the pilots versus being autonomous is? Because we sort of get uh, we sort of are told, you know, both elements like we're told that the Eva, the Eva's can't really operate at full uh, capacity or optimum or whatever without pilots, right? And that's the whole nature of the show is that all of our main characters are pilots of these Evas. And yet, even early on in the first, when when Gendo is first trying to convince Shinji, and I forget what happens, I forget if an angel attacks or something, or if uh, maybe some of the infrastructure is about to fall on him, but then the Eva 1 unit like on its own without having a pilot, like protects Shinji, right? Mm-hmm. Which obviously tells us that there's either a level of autonomy or perhaps one thing I had considered is that, you know, we have three uh, three Avas and we have three supercomputers. And so perhaps with the Magi, maybe the Magi have some level of control with the Evas. Um, oh, that could be too. Yeah. So I guess like, I, again, you know, I know it's kind of hard to necessarily settle on any one, <laughs> you know, again, objective truth. Cause so much of this is open to interpretation, but did you kind of land anywhere with regards to what I just mentioned? So I think that I actually landed on because I, I sort of view the whole thing as Gendo being domineeringly bad. Um, or or okay. at least exploitative, right? I think it, sure. it, for me, I landed on there are human personalities that have been chained to these machines and then subdued with every technological, biological means that this person has. I feel like most of the, you know, fluid is there to, like, keep the personality locked away in the Ava. I feel like he is, I feel like there are, human personalities locked in there because that feels the most Gendo thing to me. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> I don't know if the, if the series, you know, I don't know if the series visual evidence uh, corroborates that, but that's how it feels to me. And that there is that scene early on with the eye where it, it kind of opens up from the slit and looks directly yeah. at Shinji. And to me, there was the, there was that look of recognition. Like, I don't know how to describe that because it's an animated thing but it felt like a recognition and to me that really lends well to this being the soul or the remaining personality pieces of Shinji's mother locked in this machine yeah absolutely and I think that uh, I think that that's largely corroborated by there was a quick scene at the end and I wasn't quite sure what the 
meaning of it was, but it's when Ritsuko does the reveal about, you know, Rei and the, the vessels and all of that. And right before that, she shows the like what what Shinji refers to as an Eva graveyard. And mm-hmm. we sort of see like a lot of these sort of like spines and whatnot. And so, yeah, so I sort of came to the conclusion as well that like there's it's probably some degree of experimentation where it's like they've developed some way to fuse machine and man and to where you know so that these machines ultimately have souls in our individual beings but it's you know it was new technology that they had to work through so the eva graveyard was i think just uh, sort of reinforcing that idea again they're just sort of taking humans and machines and trying to meld them into this like new unique being but it's not it's not really explored in the depth that a lot of the other elements of the show are you know Oh, absolutely. But I feel like I feel like that is what they what they're talking about when they mention the sync rates, right? Like Yeah. Um I think that there is sentience there, but I think it's been dulled. And I think that it's been it's a caged animal, right? They've they've taken a human That's and a they've, good point. they've taken all of the thinking prowess and and the the will to survive, right? And they've put it into this little box and put it in the back of this thing's head, and then they gave somebody else control of that a couple different yeah. ways. So it's you know this it's it's a caged animal i mean it, there's even an episode referred to as the beast you know and it's it's drawing parallels between some of the angels and some of the avas and shinji honestly so it's it's i think that exploration of human nature dictates that there has to be some kind of sentience that has been stripped and shamed and placed in these machines right because yeah. they they give them back their humanity with that sync rate and that that different pilot sync rate per Ava, I think, is is like you had mentioned. That's got to be there has to be something to that, and I think that it's the genetic connection because that's that, yeah. when that eye opened up, it looked like it looked like recognition to me. And again, I don't know how to explain that. I typically thought that the the sync rates would be related to like the mind of the pilots connecting with the body of the Eva, but now that you're mentioning it, yeah, I think it's probably more in line to assume that. It's basically like a mind meld, and and it's basically the pilot's ability to me- uh, meld its psychology with the psychology of the original human that is now part of this biomechanical being in the form of an Eva, as opposed to maybe just locking into its physicality. So yeah, I could definitely appreciate that. I would, and I think part of that is supported by there being a there is a scene where. Um, Asuka and Shinji are in the same cockpit and she goes, are you thinking in Japanese right now? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like, which of course is strange, you know, because in the dub that's presented by English, but it's, but it gives you this cognitive dissonance where you go, oh, people in other languages think in other languages. Yeah. And, and you'd have to like take that into account. And so there's a, there's even an additional layer there of, because he can't go, okay, well then I'll think in German. Now, fortunately she's a polyglot and amazing. And she just like <laughs> goes, well, I guess I'll just think in Japanese then. Yeah. But it's, it's, there is something about it that screams those individuals are the ones that have to be there. And I think part of that, um, part of what I like about that is that when we see that first Ava kind of lose it and go berserk, the first thing it does is try to attack Gendo. Right. Yeah. So to me, that's like, OK, maybe they weren't 100 percent willing participants or maybe sure. 
maybe he glossed over some of the details or something, <laughs> you know. Like, well, yeah, no, I think it's just a case of, yeah, the the experimented animals, you know, finally got a chance to enact retribution. And so that's their initial or almost anyways. And that's their yeah. initial response to, um, to that. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, moving forward from there, we also have the whole nature of Ray and, and the part that she mm. plays in everything. And that's obviously... I mean, that plays into the Evas, that plays into Gendo and Yui and the relationships. And what we would soon learn is that Naoko uh, actually ended up committing suicide because she learned through the Rei character that Gendo was no longer in love with her, was just using her to for his aims, much to your point. And yeah, and I think that, you know, the Gendo character, he is, I, to me, he's... I don't know that he's supposed to be sympathetic. I know that he does believe that what he's doing is saving humanity. And you could argue that at the end of the day it does. But I think that it's I don't think that's the point. I think that I think that the show is rightfully critical of how he goes about it. And I think that it's you know, there's a lot of people that subscribe to the idea of the ends justifying the means. And I don't Mm. think the creator of the show is of that of that mindset. I think that. Agreed. I think that the show believes there's a right and wrong way to go about doing things, and Gendo yeah. is absolutely going about it the wrong way. And and just the and we see that through the wake of devastation that he just leaves with everything he touches. And to your the funny thing too is you know you mentioned earlier that he was a manipulator of women, and that's true. But he also manipulates men to the same exact degree. I think it's the way he does it because with the women he always ends up taking advantage of their bodies. They obviously have a sexual relationship. I'm sure it's you know just a matter of physical pleasure for him. He doesn't seem like he particularly loves them or anybody. But He's obviously manipulated Shinji through the entirety of the show and does not give a lick that he's like messing with this kid's psychology whatsoever. Like he's just using him to his aims. And he's by the end of it, he will have been manipulating Zile, which is 12 of the most powerful men in the entire world that apparently have the ability to shape the future of humanity and the universe or at least Earth. Right. So, I mean, this dude is literally just playing everyone all the time for his own means. It's true, and he is some sort of master psychologist because he knows full well that he's messing with Shinji's psychology, right? Yeah. Like um, the scene earlier on in the series when Shinji shows up, they're they're having a power outage, and he's like, "Oh, how did they get the plug in the machine?" And she goes, "Oh, your father had faith that you would be here in time, so he got ready for you." And it's like, dude, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> If the machine doesn't work, everyone dies. Like yeah. so put the plug in and hope the guy shows up. It's not that. Like but he told her when you see him, tell him that because that's the only way he's going to get in there and do this effing job, right? Yeah. And it's like I I agree with you 100%. The series is going this is not how you do this. And when you <laughs> when you try to assign people identity or, you know, agency rather than allow them to do that themselves, there is some serious backlash going on. Sure. And and to your point, even if even if it ends up in a positive outcome, in air quotes, you cannot justify that to the people that you used as tools to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that even, you know, by the end of it, we get those shots where, like, everybody either killed themselves or was shot by him or, you know, whatever. But again, just like pretty much like, you know, he's the king, the, the Midas of death, right? Everything he touches turns to turns to blood and death and destruction. Now, so we, but we did talk about, and this is kind of what makes him an interesting character and 
potentially keeps him from being an outright villain in the uh, eyes of certain people, If even though he's obviously still the antagonist driving everything <laughs> forward. Um, and that's that, you know, he's... So there's two things going on here, okay? There is the Zile plan. Now, that's one thing. And then we soon learn that Akari, Commander Gendo Akari, is actually playing Zile for his own aim. And I kind of want to go into a little bit about what exactly each of those were specifically. I think that Gendo's aim to me was a little bit more clear than Zile. And so if you have more color on that, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. But that's that. So very, okay, flat out, this is my question. I'll give it a little color and then I'll pass it off to you. My my, my direct question is what exactly are Zile's plans? Okay. Now we know that it has something to do with triggering the third impact, which will essentially wipe out humanity, but in not the same way that Gendo's instrumentality plan will. So before I go into it, let me just pass it to you and say, like, what is your opinion of what's going on here? Okay. So having viewed Zile to this point, up to this point as the monolithic, you know, New World Order, Illuminati, whatever trope you would yeah. like to apply mm-hmm. to them, they're in charge of everything. Uh, I had an assumption that they were like, Oh, we will retreat to either, you know, maybe a a space station or some sort of ultra deep base where we're pretty sure we'll survive and we'll just let everybody else die. We're fine with that mm-hmm. um, because we have the resources at the end to rebuild and, you know, this that, and the other thing. I sure. don't 100 percent know that that's the case, but at some point you have to start going that ha- like if everybody they're the only survive the only goal that any of these groups could have would be survival i would think right but but we start seeing this to your point at the start of episode 21 we start seeing the origin of nerve and it's like or nerve but nerve, it's like we, yeah. <laughs> we kind of were getting we'd been led to that point already where it's like there has to be angel involvement at the start of nerve right mm-hmm. there just has to cuz the technology jumps are too like wacky to just be something that somebody figured out so it becomes obvious at some point like okay the angels are involved in the birth of nerv more than just like as an organization to stop them they're involved as like some of the actual substance of how this works so i don't know if zele is a you know nuke it all and hopefully survive or if it's a we want um control via possession of information because to me they seem very um uh not post-human i guess what would the term for that be current human like they just have regular (laughs) people goals like they have capitalist goals and they want to survive and stuff like that so but it actually that might be it because it pairs well with this sense of like you know this the series starts like oh the world could be ending and yeah then takes a lot of time to show you that there are a lot of people that still have to like go do their laundry on the weekend and spend time in school at classrooms mm-hmm. and like you know figure out where the money for this organization is going like what isn't the <laughs> world ending like shouldn't should all the resources be focused to nerve and and shouldn't everybody be constantly like freaking out all the time about angel attacks and like the end of humanity yeah don't you think but i mean they do go they do show you know like there is some cover-up going on and this that and the other thing but i'm like come on at some point all of the governments of the world would go okay we just have to stop this we yeah can't, it can't be about money right so i don't know because it, it, it comes to i feel like if there's one thing that 
Ikari Gendo Ikari could be said to have done good, it would be to like bypass the bureaucracy of the oligarchs, right? Sure. But, did he do that for his own purposes again? Oh, or I'm was sure. It actual... I'm sure he did. Yeah, right. 100%. Because he's That's well, and he character. like, and they sent uh, Kawaru, right? Like, yeah, they were the ones who are saying, "Okay, here's the pilot. We'll provide the pilot." And then that's just like the beginning of the downfall. But it's like if he's been playing them the whole time, then that was his idea, right? Like he knew that they needed some sort of chaos agent. And it you're right that it makes it very difficult to extricate which threads are which. Like Yeah. So so here's here, here's kind of like and again, it's not it's I don't know that it's fully fleshed out, but it's kind of something to go on. So initially it was like, okay, probably a case where, you know, again, they're the New World Order, they're the Illuminati, maybe they're striving for control, right? Maybe they're not in control, but they're striving for control. And so basically they're like, hey, let's wipe the whole thing out and, you know, be in control of all the resources and start anew in our image. Image and then, you know, like we'll be the rulers of the world moving forward. I, now, I still think that that's in essence like the, 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 the main aim of their plan. But there are some clues that show up later, one in specifically, where it specifically hinges around the Avas. OK, there. So there is a scene later. It's it's where they're interrogating Ritsuko, where they actually have her stripped down naked and they're basically mm-hmm. like trying to go to the next phase. Um, and they basically say and it's after uh, Ikari commands Ray to grab the spear of Longinus and to use it to to destroy the angel again. We'll get to that in a second. Right. But what happens there is in response the board, Zile, says, why did he why did he order her to throw the Spear of Longinus away? We only have eight of the twelve Avas done. We still need the four the four other Avas to be finished and completed before we can enact our plan, which does hinge apparently on the Spear of Longinus, because them not having that anymore was like a problem, right? So I think that kind of where this all led me to is that they do want to create a new world order and their aim is kind of similar in the sense of like they do want to evolve mankind to like the next stage of evolution. And in their eyes, rather than being a unified energy being, so to speak, it's the Avas. The Avas themselves are the next stage of evolution. And so I believe that they're trying to set this up to, in essence, birth the Avas as the new race of humanity that they will be in charge of. I think you are correct. And if Gendo is, has his gloved white fingers in everything, Mm -hmm. which we know that he does, then perhaps that's his backup, right? His plan is new humanity, no matter what, if it's LCL energy being cool, if it has to be Avas, that's the backup plan, whatever it is, I'm going to be there. Yeah. And, and I think that's the essence of what makes him his ends not justify it, right? Because it really is selfish. He's like, yeah. I will be there. I will usher this in, that sort of a thing. And, I mean, it's a classic main character thing to do. But um, I I think that's a brilliant point, and I think I am landing on it now. Like, I think I'm having a moment of realization where Zele was his backup to his own plan, and yeah. he convinced them that they were the ones implementing it. And... I'm sorry. I have to just comment on the pure coolness of 
throwing a space spear through a freaking monster head and into orbit. Like, I'm sorry. That is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. There's just, you know, it doesn't matter how old we are. We're always going to have that, like, 14-year-old boy in us that's just like, robots and monsters and space tritons and, like, yes, (laughs) interstellar beings. I love this. Give me more. Um, yeah, and that's what's so cool, and I think that's what allows, you know, I think that's what's so interesting about Neon Genesis Evangelion is it's like they take that stuff and then they're like, but we know that like, you know, you can't just like like Transformer battles. So like, here's a healthy smattering of like psychological examinations for you to feel grown up about, and you're like, sweet, thanks Neon Genesis. Now let's get back to the robots. Oh, man, <laughs> it's and it's like. Dude, okay, when I was watching this, my my thing, I'll be honest, the first time that I watched this, I watched it with my arms crossed because people were like, it's one of the greatest series ever. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's about giant robots. How cool could it be? <laughs> and I I was like, part of my, my resistance to it was there's going to be no point of relatability in this because I'm not <laughs> a robot pilot, right? Yeah. Um, but you know what I have been is a prepubescent teenage boy <laughs> and- Oh my God, poor Shinji. This whole series. Yeah. It's like every humiliation, every like awkward moment, every uncertainty about just what do I do with my hands? How do I exist in a room with other people? Like they somehow captured that so neurotically accurately yeah. that it, I mean, it really does stress you out when you're watching the show. Like it gives you this really uncomfortable point of relatability. And I think that's what makes the rest of it so effective. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I told you I told you uh, off air at the top of the show that, like, you know, I didn't really want to do like a ton of research and go over a lot of the stuff that's already out there. But one of the things I did come across um, is because it's one of those things where it's like, oh, okay, let me get a a re-summary, you know, and then like they'll throw in some info and you're like that. But then it's something good to consider, which is when I when as soon as I finished the show, like I was like, oh, I feel like this is the result of intense psychotherapy. Right. It feels like the creator of this show was Shinji and really like worked through a lot of stuff through some intense psychotherapy and, you know, then imbued a lot of that into this show as, you know, sort of an artistic expression of that. And sure enough, it does turn out that that was the case uh, where the creator actually suffered a four year bout of depression. I mean, obviously, there's always, you know, genetics and stuff that parlay in. But I guess the the straw that broke the camel's back is and I forget the, the, the project, but he had a project that he put a lot of, you know, time, effort, money into. And it basically just like bombed after a, a series of bombs. And it was just that like, you know, what am I doing with my life sort of thing? And, you know, and I think especially look, I mean. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people in the podcasting community, myself included, that, you know, have definitely had challenges with regards to, you know, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I know that, you know, a lot of people that even before, you know, with the last couple of years in COVID and the isolation and, you know, how different people were affected and both their lives, their professions, everything else, you know, um, I think just, you know, the nature of specifically anxiety and depression in regards to like mental health issues as a whole. Um, is definitely something that, you know, much more of the population today, uh, certainly here in the U.S., I can't speak to other countries, but certainly here in the U.S. can identify with and allows for because it may be difficult, especially for some of the younger people, you know, to realize that, like, it was only about 20 years ago that mental health issues started to become destigmatized, you know, um, before then, anybody who went to therapy was a freaking loon. Right. And that's just the way it was. And that's how all of us thought. And that's how we thought as a country. And it's really 
Like, I'm very impressed with us as a country to be able to move past that um, and get to a point where we can look at the mind the same way we do as the as the body. And it's like, look, dude, you know, every now and then. Yeah, just by virtue of living, your body's going to get a cold or, you know, it's going to come into contact with this and uh, it's going to break down for a few days and you're going to have to, you know, rest and recover and, and, you know, let your sort of, you know, intrinsic self take care of itself. And and the mind is no different, you know, and uh, this series definitely explores a lot of that. It does. And And that's an excellent point. And to that point, I think that this is probably okay. I, I come from the world of analyzing anime adaptations right uh that's currently what my show is covering <laughs> is the live action anim- adaptation of cowboy bebop it got a lot of hate i'm my yeah. part of my goal is to be a positive force for that show i mean it's been canceled but definitely go give it a second look and and watch it with an open heart the way you would an anime but yeah. i think to that point a lot of people because there have been years of here comes the american live action evangelion right there those reports have been on the yeah. internet pretty much since the internet started being popular it was like well america's <laughs> gonna get a hold of this at some point and it will be bad and i think to your point i think a reason that a lot of people were worried about it is because they knew most american storytellers for the last 10 15 20 years wouldn't handle the nuances of the psychological piece of this story correctly or they wouldn't pay it enough attention right they would go oh cool a story about giant robots and actually if we're being real did you see pacific rim because that's kind of what pacific rim did and (laughs) i i'm not same thing too i was like they obviously borrowed a lot yes because i saw pacific rim before evangelion and so after that oh that's where like three quarters of their ideas came from cool continue and and they stripped i i I don't fault the movie. It was a lot of fun to watch. Um, and I'm not in the it business of, yeah. I'm not in the business of offering a lot of criticism. If you've ever listened to my show before, mostly because I like to be positive, but also because I don't have a lot of um, creative uh, talent behind me to go. I could do better. And I know that's not a requirement, but it's one of those things that still feels weird to me. But sure. that having yeah. been said, I think I would agree that for the last, you know, maybe until now, we probably wouldn't have been able to get a good adaptation of this because that piece would be left by the wayside or not properly respected. But I mean, now if it were to happen, it might be better, but I, I, you know, not to jump ahead, but there is new Evangelion being made by the original creators. Currently, I think it either just finished or it's about to finish, but I haven't, I haven't dived into any of that personally, but you know, it, point being there is still an appetite for this kind of storytelling for deeply personal yet wickedly cool to look at storytelling like that is the <laughs> essence of anime right and and for that reason i think neon genesis evangelion is part of the essence of anime 100 percent, man absolutely so let's go ahead and let's jump back to where we left off in terms of the storytelling so we've also haven't really touched on auska's character at all At this point in the show, like she's completely broken down. Right. So it was already, you know, she had a lot of repressed memories with regards to um, her mother. And, you know, it's revealed that her mother ended up not only committing suicide, but had a very severe mental illness where she basically believed that her doll was, in fact, her daughter and is such just completely ignored Auska. And that's where a lot. And, you know, dad, you know, they don't even go into it. But, you know, if he was ever there, he left very, very early on. So um, it was just her and her mother and her mother suffers this, you know, very severe mental illness. And so she's left on her own. And so that's obviously where, you know, over the years she developed this like overcorrection where she's just hyper independent and 
you know, we ultimately learn that all of that is really just a cover for these deep-seated insecurities that relate to being abandoned. And I think, you know, we even, like, see that her mom was, like, trying to convince her to, like, take her own life with her. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, it was very, very intense stuff, you know? And um, so, and then on top of that, the angel that she's fighting also has this, like, psychological weapon that, like, blasts a beam of psychological corruption that only brings these feelings to the surface more so. Um, And then it pretty much completely breaks her down to the point where she's not even able to interact with her Eva anymore. So she's pretty much down for the count. And, and I also thought it was interesting too, that the, the way that she's presented after all of this happens is very much the way that Shinji has been represented through most Mm. of it, you know? And so she's been very, critical of Shinji and his, you know, depression and his inability to, you know, take charge and all of this. And I thought it was very interesting that when once she gets broken down and into a similar state, uh, they actually cover her the same way. You know, they use the same sort of like slow push in, um, you know, center frame. And the way that she looks down, her body language is very similar to Shinji's and her questioning herself. And so, you know, it was kind of just an interesting arc to eventually bring her to that place that she's been so critical of uh, because she's such a strong character for most of the show. Yeah. And she, I mean, up until that point, honestly, she could also just be seen as like the, the loudest subconscious ever for Shinji, right? Because a lot of the Mm -hmm. stuff that she says is stuff that he probably thinks and feels about himself, but doesn't externalize it because that would mean that he actually is worthless. And he says suspected that for a while. Right. But she's like, I mean, she's obviously saying stuff like, come on, you're a man. You should be better at this. You should be not thinking about this. You should be past this, that kind of a thing. You should be, you know, why are you worried about this kind of thing? And she also represents, I mean, back to my point of being the, you know, non-confident, awkward, prepubescent teenage boy. She also represents that that one or two years older than you girl, right? Who's just got everything figured out and her confidence is like thrown in your face constantly because she's a year or two older than you. And it's like, man, that is very relatable, but it you do as an adult, you're watching it and going, Oh, she's just as much of a child as he is. That's so great. You know, she's just, she learned how to put up the facade before he did. Yeah. And, and yeah, I going back to her origin though, I do. It does make me wonder because if I, I feel like there's a version of this where everything that happens literally is something that was set up by Gendo, right? So I feel like there's a version where he like meets Asuka's mother and then gets her pregnant and then mentally abuses her to the point where she's like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. And then he uses that moment to like take her, you know, ghost and put it into the Ava and then have Asuka drive that Ava. But it's like, because she, I don't, I, it's so hard to tell. Is she associating the Ava with her mother or is some part of her mother actually there? Because we know there is an organic component to the Avas, right? Yeah. And, and if he stripped all of the parts of her that are capable of rational thought and understanding and empathy, then all that would be left is this crazy depressed lady who killed herself. Yeah. And it was like, you know, that's his way of victimizing people. And as we mentioned before, he uses women for their bodies. So if he was able to take all of her agency from her mentally and just leave her in this shell, I think that the the parallel there makes it fit and it makes it more understandable why Asuka becomes so attached to her Ava. Yeah. I mean, outside of the Ava being her contribution to society, right? Because she knows 
I could save the planet. And she has that teenage um, chutzpah, right? She's got the confidence that you have when you're 14 and you've succeeded at two things in a row. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, now I'm unstoppable. So it's 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 such a nuanced story with so many little points that are like nebulous at the end of it still that it you're you're right to ask and to go like where what is the origin of each one of these pieces and did gendo you know put all these things together but if not he's still just exploiting an orphan girl and that's still awful it's like there are so many ways that this could be awful yeah no dude you kind of just blew my mind right now because like i'm now kind of wondering slash like already immediately convinced of like two things that I just never considered before of. And that's the first is like, is Gendo is Gendo's Auska's father? Like Gendo could absolutely be Auska's father because yeah. you've already talked about the fact that he's this master manipulator and we, and literally like this dude just showed up, got her pregnant and bailed. That yeah. would 100% trend, and it would also keep in line with him being the master architect where all of this stuff, you know, like the way that Peter Jackson was out there planting the trees 20 years before he <laughs> – like he was – he's been long uh, playing this for so long before anybody even knew what the hell was going on. I have to – I cannot not give a shout-out to my friend Cameron from the Green Shirt Podcast. I know he was a guest. We had him on um, the show, actually. Cameron's a, a good of, friend yes. of ours as well. Lord of the Rings is oh that's why I bring him up. Uh, Lord of the Rings is one of Cameron's favorites, and and that was a that was a beautiful moment of of uh, synchronicity for me. Uh, but yeah, I mean if you <laughs> yeah, if and he you... actually just talked about it on Cheap Seat by the way too, which is also a friend of the show, Sean. Yes. And uh, we're actually going to uh, we're going to be on his show um, a couple months down the road. So yeah, we're Very all kind of cool. connected, aren't we? It is a it is a a small circle, but it is a an exclusive circle. And when I say exclusive, I mean I just mean that it's small, really, because we're we'll, we're welcoming people as long <laughs> as they're willing to talk about stuff, right? I mean, but if you think about it, like, if this is all Gendo manipulation, right, and he's the only mm-hmm. one that has access and a relationship with Ray's mother in real life, and he's the only one that has access and relationship with Shinji's mother in real life, he's the only one that knows the whole story of Asuka, He's constantly, he knows there will be more children, right? He goes, they haven't found the fourth children Mm -hmm. yet. So he knows that there are more pilots out there. How could he possibly know that if he doesn't know where they're coming from? He could know that if he was just gone all the time, planting his seeds, so to speak, all over the world and going, Mm -hmm. someday, these will be the kids that I go back and get because my genetic mix with their mothers is what will make them compatible with the giant robots that I'm building in my creepy basement. And it all fits, like... I don't know if that's how Absolutely. it's supposed to be, but it does all fit and it, it makes you really hate Gendo even more. Then <laughs> let me ask you this. What are the chances that Eva 2, because we've talked before that the Evas are, you know, if what we say is correct, they're basically taking humans and melding them with the Evas. Is Eva 2 her mom? And is that is. why this is that why the sink breaks down later once all of those emotions come back to the surface because i think that's what it is because yeah. it fits narratively that's and nuts. i think that if you think 100%. about it from from okay so we come to know narratively that ray ha- has been and can be cloned 
right? She's an artificial yeah. person. Mm -hmm. And she was experimental. The first Ava, Unit Zero, is also experimental. It's We've seen it go yeah. berserk. Like, we've seen it have issues, that kind of a thing. It's not designed for some of the stuff the others are, other Avas are designed for. So that was the first time yeah. that he manipulated a woman into putting her soul into a robot. And then he ran into problems. And he went, oh, okay, well, then the next time I'll, you know, I'll upgrade or I'll do things differently. So I think, dude, I think it fits. Like... And yeah, it does absolutely. it does start to raise questions, though, like the is that well, and I think it is making the point precisely that the soul, the ghost in the shell is what matters. Right. Because without that, we see yeah. the, the fully autonomous robot one. We see that one just go berserk. So it's like I think they yeah. are making the point that you have to meld humans and technology to solve a problem. But. It's just done in such an exploitative, penetrative way, and and it happens in both instances yeah. with with the Avas and the Angels. Like there is the the floating diamond angel has the drill bit. It's like a seventeen yeah. meter drill bit they mentioned, um, but it also has a pulsating vein in that drill bit. So it's like there is a lot of <laughs> penetrative, exploitative, yeah. bad. You don't have to use to too much imagination here. to uh, yeah. connect those dots there. <laughs> Okay, that's going to wrap up our discussion for today. We will be back in two weeks with part two of this discussion. It'll pick up right where we left off. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Esoterica Cinema.